Hey, welcome to episode number five of the Daniel Floyd Leadership Podcast, where we are all about inspiring leaders to become more. On today's episode, I'm so excited for you to get to know my friend, Bianca Oltoff. She and her husband, Matt, pastor the Father's House in Orange County, California. She's an author, a speaker, and she's the host of the We're Going There podcast. What you're going to love about Bianca is her authenticity her contagious energy. I believe you'll be motivated by her tenacity. Now, when I think of Bianca and her story, one word comes to mind, and that's resilience. It's something we could all use a little bit more of these days. If in this conversation, you're inspired to become more determined, transparent in your leadership, or develop half the enthusiasm for life that Bianca has, I would love it if you would rate, review, and leave a comment. It helps so much. And if you want show notes and discussion guides with every episode, as well as exclusive leadership content sent straight to your inbox, head over to danielfloyd.org. We hope you enjoy today's conversation. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited for today. I've been waiting for this one for a while. We've had Maxwell. We've had Chris Hodges. We're leveling up to a whole nother level of <laughs> leadership today. We have my friend Bianca Oltoff with us. And uh, I tell you, this podcast really is happening in large part because of her inspiration, her encouragement, and a whole lot of wisdom. If you don't know Bianca, then you're in for a treat. She uh, worked for six years for uh, an NGO helping with human trafficking. She has led at uh, Propel Women. Her and her husband, Matt, have planted a church, the Father's House in Orange County, and they are crushing it. They're both just incredible leaders. Bianca, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. Oh, wow. Thank you for having me. What an introduction. Honestly, I feel like <laughs> I just got invited, invited to the like big kids table. So, I mean, I'm John Maxwell and Pastor Chris, Chris Hodges. And I, I, listen, I don't know how I got an invite, but I am sure glad to be here. <laughs> hey, so uh, I was telling the team the, yesterday uh, and we were talking through this. I said, the first time I met Bianca, she came to preach at our church and I destroyed your last name. So I need to publicly apologize <laughs> for that again. I don't even know what I said, but it was nowhere right. It was So now it I got it right. <laughs> Well, now Bianca. we're friends. Now we're friends, so I know yes. it. And hey, before we get into any serious questions, uh, you got to tell everyone how you saved somebody's life here in Fredericksburg one weekend when you came. Okay, okay. So this, this is, is when best. I knew. This is when I knew that we were going to be forever friends. Like, if I save somebody's life in your yes. hometown, like you just gotta, you gotta love me for life, right? So <laughs> I'll ch- I'll make a long story short. Um, You had invited me. uh, I worked for a global anti-human trafficking organization. And you guys, of course, your organization cares about the other. And it's not just local. It's also global. And so um, I met with one of your key team. And we started talking about what would it look like for you guys to invest in global anti-human trafficking initiatives. And so fast forward, I fly out there. You guys have an outreach weekend. It's amazing. You're, you're just meeting the needs of the community. And then you, I was going to be speaking at church. Well, y'all dropped me off at the hotel. And, um, there was a good gap between when we were going to meet and that moment. And I had, I'd flown in. So I went to go grab a salad across the way and long story short, 
there is um, like a, a hubble blue around this car. People are scattered around it. And um, of course, I grew up on Jerry Springer. So I'm like, ooh, what, what's going on? What's the tea up in here? Frederick Bird is popping. And I walked over and I said, hey, is everything okay? And a guy jumps back after opening the car door and he's like, hey, man, that guy's dead. And I don't know what it was like, but I was, I was a lifeguard for eight years. And all of a sudden I was like, move over David Hasselhoff. Old Hoff is here. Okay. So I start talking to this guy. I yell out, someone call 911. I go into lifeguard mode, ABC, airway, breathing, circulation. I check his airway. I make sure the the guy is breathing. What's circulation? He was not breathing. His skin was turning Mm -hmm. blue. His lips were turning purple. So I tell this guy like, Hey, help me get him out of him out of the car. And he's like, do you know what you're doing? And I said, absolutely. I'm a lifeguard. Brother, I had not been a lifeguard at this point for like seven years. But here we are, here we are pulling this like 6263 guy out of a car. I lay him down and start going into rescue breathing. I hear sirens in the background. By the time the ambulance came, um, you know, they were, they cut open his shirt. They're putting uh, the the, the electroshock magnets on him. They're doing Mm -hmm. the EKG machine, the whole nine. Well, I step back, I filled a report. They put him in um, the ambulance and and I do, I, 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 I give my testimony and then leave. That was it. And I called my husband and I said, Matthew, I think I saved a guy's life. And he said, Bianca, you're so dramatic. I said, no, baby, I really did. I really did. And he said, wait, what happened? I recounted the story and he said, what's his name? I was like, baby, I don't even know his name. He's like, is he okay? I said, I don't know. And so I left, I, I couldn't even eat. I'd lost my appetite at this point. And I walked back across the parking lot and I saw the ambulance still there. I'm walking towards this crowd. And then this blonde haired lady who i had saw at the scene, she said, she yelled out, oh, that's her. That's the girl that saved your life. And this young 22 year old guy handsome strapping great health turns to me and with tears in his eyes he like gives me the biggest hug and i went from like save sanctifying saint to like hood and holy real quick i said brother you were like lazarus you were dead and now you are alive let me tell you something i'm here to speak at church and you need to get your butt in church tomorrow i was like turning into td jakes in in the summer sweating the whole thing you know and so anyway 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 that was my first encounter there at church. I loved it. I, for, you guys have become forever friends. I love not just right. who you are, but I love what you do and how you lead. So thank you for having me be on the show. Incredible. From saving a guy's life to uh, three years ago, you were in our living room when our little guy came. We adopted yes. to the house. So yes. What just a special day. What a whole special lot of day. Great, whole lot of great memories. So, yes. hey, I want us to talk around the topic of resilience today. When I, when I think about mm-hmm. you, your story just someone that has fought through a whole lot um, to be where you are today. And so if you could uh, give us just kind of some origin story and yeah. how that is, how that's really shaped who you are today. So before we go into like this story, cause my, my, my fear in telling part of my backstory is that somebody's going to hear this and say, Oh, that sounds like an after school special. I don't relate with it. That was just you. Or maybe somebody else is going to say like, Oh, well, you know, that's just because you're wired that way, or that's just the way that your brain functions. And the truth of the matter is resilience is simply the ability to get back up and yeah. fight again. I mean, one of the greatest characters who I absolutely love is Rocky Balboa. And it, whether it's Rocky one, two, three, four, five, or Apollo Creed, you know, whatever it Come is, on. there is something about that franchise that really taps in, that is multi-generational, multi-ethnic, mm-hmm. um, where it's this idea of, wow, someone could take a licking and keep, keep on ticking. And I think mm-hmm. that it doesn't matter what your background is or the color of your skin, your, eth- your ethnicity, your creed. 
Resilience is just the determination and the decision I'm going to choose to get back up. And so with that being said, I am a product of uh, immigrants. I'm a first generation American. I was raised in the concrete jungle of East Los Angeles, California. And uh, my parents made a conscious decision to home educate their children. I'm, I'm Mexican, so, you know, Latinos have lots of kids. So, like, there's lots of kids in our family. And my parents said, you know, we grew up in um, households with either, like, one parent or both parents working. And we didn't really have a home. And so my parents made a decision to home educate. So my mom mm-hmm. stayed home. But, you know, it's one income for seven people. So finances were strapped. And... The reason why they decided to home educate was the schools in our area were so messed up. They were, I mean, they just tore up from the floor up. And their concern was that we're not going to get proper education. That being said, I just really struggled academically. I couldn't read, write, or spell at the age of 12. And I really turned to food as a coping mechanism. So I have a twin sister. So if I say we, it's just because I'm referring to Jasmine and I. But we were morbidly obese. We weighed more than our father. We were illiterate. And um, many times, many times, especially, uh, I know that not everyone listening is a person of faith, but it, it it is intuitive to believe that if you go to an institution of faith or you go to a church or a temple or a mosque, like you're going to be accepted. And the place that I felt like the most rejection was in church. We were made fun wow. of and marginalized, whether it was our weight or our inability to read or um, our ethnicity. Uh, so that was really, really hard. And yet I, def- I, I, I developed a real trust in who I believed God was at a very young age. I, you, you, you could ask me about Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. I'd have no clue. But I just believed in a God, a God who told me that I was fashioned for a purpose, that before the foundations of the world, the Lord has called me and that there is a purpose for my life. And I chose to believe, given gender, ethnicity, social status, financial wherewithal, and lack thereof, that God was going to use me to do what he wanted me to do. In the interview with with John Maxwell, he said, some people oh, I listen to it, brother. I listen to your podcast. <laughs> I, I listen to your podcast. That is true. But I'm sorry. Remind me, what did he say? <laughs> he said, some people wake up with an alarm clock. He said, yeah. I wake up with purpose. And he said he remembers it from elementary age that he knew there was something purpose. For, would you say the same you sensed? So I don't I, know what it is, but there's purpose on my life. Yeah. yeah. So as a kid, I wouldn't say the waking up with purpose um, as an adult, I will say that. But as a kid, mm-hmm. I kind of had this um, this moment. You know, some people call it like a, a moment of faith. Mine wasn't necessarily a moment of faith. It was a moment of realization. I laid on the grass of our backyard and I stared up into the sky and I had, it, it was Monday and at church I was made fun of because I couldn't read. And I looked in, mm-hmm. into the heavens and I told God, if you give me words, I will give you my voice. So it wasn't even like purpose. It was literally almost like a dare. Like I kind of felt like what kid is daring God? This kid, honey. Because I was just like, if God is real, like if you give me words, I will give you my voice. Now, fast forward 20, 25, 30 years later, here I am as an adult saying, oh man, God is using my voice. Whether it's fighting anti-trafficking, whether it's advocating for the incarcerated, whether it's proclaiming the gospel or teaching God's word to people. It it literally was, I'm going to do good on my promise to God. He did good Mm -hmm. on his promise to me because this is where it does feel like a little bit of an after-school special. Um, Both my twin sister and I, we had to take a state-mandated test. for. We're from California, and in California, you have to take a state-mandated test. And we scored so low 
um, they were going to put us into remedial classes. Had we been in formal education, we would have been in remedial classes. And um, I remember listening to the proctor talk to my mom about just how low we were and to check it to see if maybe we were special needs. And, and so there was a lot going on during that time. And so then to have the conversation in the backyard and literally, I, I want to say it was in a very short period. I went from being able to like sight read and say like cat, dog, mom, dad, but zero comprehension to literally almost overnight reading novels in a day. Like Daniel, I would go through these books and it was, it was, it was voracious to me. Like it was, mm. I no longer needed bread to satiate this aching, gaping need. It was, wow, I have these stories and I have these characters and I can get lost in a world so much different than East Los Angeles, California. And then I realized, oh, knowledge is power. So mm. when I realized that when I went to high school, it was like game on. I was like, I will get a 4.0. I will be president of the school. I will be captain of the soccer team, the track team, the volleyball team, president of my sophomore year, junior year, and school president senior year, uh, Bible club president. Like it was, it was almost just like, it just switched. And, um, I will say probably in my twenties, there was like that selfish kind of like purpose. Like, listen, I grew up poor, but I'm never going to be poor. Like mm. I'll, I, I love God and I'll, you know, go to church, but I just, I was very singular minded on what success looked like. And, um, for those familiar with faith, Paul has a Damascus road experience where God literally speaks to him and God used my mom's diagnosis with brain cancer to really mm. jar me into purpose. So wow. my road was longer than John's, but now I, 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 the only time I set an alarm clock is if I have an early morning flight by and large, I am up at 5.00 AM naturally because there's things to go. There's things to do people to see uh, lives to transform books, to write podcasts, <laughs> to record. Like, yes, that's where, that's what Peloton to ride. <laughs> a Peloton to ride. That's true. Yes. <laughs> hey, just want to make sure that no one missed president of the Bible club. Like, Oh, absolutely. Cause I'm a legalist it. at heart. Like I love this <laughs> Jesus. Okay. <laughs> I wanted to be rich, but I was going to love Jesus doing it. <laughs> I mean, I, I didn't want us, you know, I didn't want us to glaze over that president <laughs> of the you. Bible club, Thank everybody. <laughs> hey, let's go, let's go a little bit deeper. If you will. Um, yeah. you talked about resiliency. It's, how quick is the gap between the event that knocked you down and your ability to get back up? The yeah. more you can close that gap, the more resilient you become. So talk a little bit about how, how, how did you do that? Because the, the feeling of rejection mm. is a horrible feeling. The feeling of I don't fit in, the feeling of loneliness. How did you push past? Because I think a lot of times people, the emotion paralyzes them and it feels so overwhelming. How did you push past that to begin to build that muscle of resiliency that has served you so well now? Yeah, that's a great question. So a side note, how you frame, how you frame the world for others is a gift. So for everyone listening to this podcast and gets to learn from you, thank you. Um, so I would say as an adult, it's different than how I process it as a kid. And I think that two pivotal I would say people or situations, elements helped build that spirit of resilience. The first one is my father. And um, he was so affirming in who we were. And though we couldn't read every single night, my father would pull out books and he would read to us, read to us aloud. And he would speak truth over us. And when we were hurt or made fun of or marginalized, 
um, in his mind of dealing, it was to show us uh, what resilience was. He modeled resilience for us. Wow. I remember a quick little caveat because these things helped form like who I am today. My father, who is still pastoring in East Los Angeles, California, even to this day, uh, he was speaking at a men's conference and there was probably, I think like eight to 10 speakers. He was the only person of color. And here my dad is, he has a thick Mexican accent. And yet when he preached, I mean, brother, the walls vibrated. People were, go <laughs> people were going off. They loved daddy. And I remember being young. I was probably like 10 or 11 at this time, but my, my dad brought me to, 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 to mm. the conference with him. And I went to the back room, the green room, and all the pastors were there. And there's this one pastor who was leading the conference who, as a child, I remember jealousy that exuded from his pores. Mm. And he went up behind my dad and he was like mockingly like massaging him saying, oh, well, everyone loves you. And he used a a negative word in describing my dad. And then my dad said nothing. And then he took his hand and hit the back of my dad's head. And I mean, as an adult now, I, I, I listen, I love Jesus, but I will go to blows <laughs> with somebody. And there's my father who smiled, pursed his lips and just shook his head. Like it was some jovial joke. My dad taught me that just because someone wants to be savage, you don't have to stoop to that level. And wow. so watching my dad and having him speak truth over me was just absolutely true because when nothing in the world looked like what he was telling us, he remained stalwarty in the craziness of life. Mm. And then the second thing was, um, uh, again, I'm going to refer to my faith a lot. And for anyone who's annoyed with that, I'm sorry in advance, but I was raised in a God-fearing household. And so as a young child, we were taught the ways of God. And I would go to Sunday school and I would sit in big church and I would listen to this amazing God who freed the Israelites out of 400 years of oppressive slavery. And there was something, even as a child, that resonated with this concept of freedom. Like if mm. I could just yeah. be set free, then there is a land for me to inherit. The reason why I am so passionate about when I, whether it was working to fight trafficking or to advocate for the incarcerated till this day, or even preach the word of God, I am wildly fascinated with this concept of of freedom because I know how God has freed me and it has released me to live in this promised land. Is it easy? No. Are there giants? Yes. Are there battles? Yes. But I have been called. I have been fashioned. And no matter what comes my way, he who calls me is faithful. He who calls me will mm -hmm. equip me where God guides, he provides. So I would say those two relationships, one heavenly, one earthly, both my fathers, yeah. a heavenly father and an earthly father, honestly modeled that for me. Now, what does it look like as an adult now? What does it look like as an adult is a lot of self-talk and um, really working through this with uh, counseling and therapy. I'm a big advocate. Um, I, I, yeah. I love great counsel, great wisdom, especially with licensed professionals who know how the brain works. And so now when blows come my way, when there's negative criticism, when things are said online, when people disagree theologically, when people have comments about my weight, that is where I have to choose. I know who I am. I know what I'm called to. I know that God is on the throne. There are situations going on with my life that no one else knows about and it's none of their business. I have to choose to believe. I'm gonna do what I need to do to make sure that I bounce mm -hmm. back from this and I can't let people hold me down. Like I literally, I literally can't. So I would say as, an, a, child, as a child, the voices of pivotal figures speaking truth of my life and as an adult speaking the truth over myself and also walking through and deciphering what is true and what is not true in this season. Yeah. I, I don't know of a great leader or anyone that's really making a, a difference with their life that hasn't learned to get control of their thinking. Mm, 
Mm-hmm. I, I think that's such a pivotal thing. Like, yeah. if I always I tell our church, uh, you don't have to think every thought you think. <laughs> like, just just because it pops in your mind, you yeah. don't have to you don't have to let it continue to spin and go. Um, I think that's such a powerful tool that every I think every leader um, and obviously being in the faith community, we're going to saturate our mind with what does God say about us. But I think every leader, like the positive thoughts, the forward moving thoughts that, OK, I'm going to come back to kind of what centers me, my identity, my character, who I know I'm called to be. Uh, I think that's that's so helpful, so powerful. Mm-hmm. You you alluded to this um, a minute ago. There were some setbacks when you were around 23 years old, right? Yeah. Yeah. And you had to pivot. Could you talk about some of the challenges you faced? Um, how did you journey through them? I think that's around the same time as your mom's cancer. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, my mom was misdiagnosed for about six years from Lyme's disease to Graves' disease to relapsing polychondritis. There was a number of things that we didn't know was wrong with her. And then it was roughly around 22, 23 that she was formally diagnosed with um, not one, but two forms of cancer. And the second one, the second form of cancer was brain cancer. In addition to that, um, my special needs uncle, who's an an adult, moved in with us because my maternal grandmother had passed away. And this dysfunctional relationship with a man I affectionately referred to as Satan for three years, that relationship had come to an end. And so it was just, it was so much chaos. It was so much drama. There was so much going on. I was in my last year of grad school. And it almost just felt like, honestly, it felt like everything that I held dear was being incinerated. Like, poof, like everything fell up in flames. My, mm. the, the doctors had given my mom a 30% chance of survival. And uh, my grandmother, who has such a significant role in my life, had passed away. Um, my dad, while still trying to lead the church, is dealing with a bout of depression. And so it, literally, it was like terra firma had been rocked like a California earthquake. That's the best way mm-hmm. to describe it. And um, in that moment, it was kind of like, if I would have said that like I had a, a bargaining conversation with God as a 12-year-old, I'm yet again having a bargaining conversation with God. And side note, I recently found out that I'm 1% Jewish. And so I feel like this is all my Jewishness right now. I'm like haggling with the, hoy vey, Yahweh, and we got another deal to make here, you know? And so I've become Yiddish really quick. And so... Um, so during, during that season, it was, I would say it was less of bargaining and it was more of an act of surrender at this point. I think Mm. I had grown in my faith with God where I'm just like, I believe that you can, I believe that you're able and I trust you with whatever you will. That was, I think a huge mind, mind shift for me. And, um, the relationship that I thought with a, with a guy that I thought I was going to marry, it fully terminated. But can I just say, praise the Lord for answer prayers. And um, I did. Hello, Matt. With, hello. Hello. Got the upgrade. <laughs> got the upgrade. Um, but, you know, just seeing God's providential hand, uh, the power of mm. his faithfulness, the power of his healing hand. Like, I know that the Lord was going to heal my mom, whether in heaven or on earth. I knew that she was going to be healed in one way or the other. Our desire was that she would be healed here on earth. And I actually spoke to my mom this morning before this interview. She's alive and kicking and still going. And I feel like um, the conversation I had with God in regards to faith in that season was what I think was a catalyst into the leader that I am today. So Mm. my ambitions wildly changed. My desire radically changed. I would have never... 
categorize myself as a leader. I mean, I was captain of the track team, varsity track team. And as a sophomore, I was captain of varsity soccer as a sophomore. And then onwards to junior and senior, I was class president and school president, but yet I never would have categorized myself as a leader. And, and even Mm -hmm. serving in church, it was a leader. A title was never given to me in the denomination or it's non-denominational, but like whatever the theological background of the church that I grew up in, women were not leaders. Women were not pastors Mm -hmm. or very esteemed for sure, loved and esteemed, but not empowered. And so I guess I never saw a, a model of female leadership. And this is the thing that I'm trying to instill in so many women is like, you can't, you can't be what you don't see. Like if there is no mm. paradigm for it, That's then great. you'll never think that it's possible. And so I don't think I categorized myself as a leader, but it was around that time where I started stepping into leadership opportunities. And that was outside of the church because I didn't see anything inside the church. And I think mm. a huge shift for me was like, I, I knew that there was a call of God upon my life and my faith was becoming real to me. And I wanted to go to seminary. And so I applied to a seminary that my church was somewhat affiliated with or would co-sign on. And I didn't think, of, okay, can I, I'm going to brag for a second. And I hope, so, I hope people see my heart in this and not like ego, but I graduated high school with a 4.0. I graduated, I was a Bill Gates Millennium Scholar all four years of undergrad. I got a full ride scholarship to grad school and graduated with a 4.0 from grad school. So I Amazing. say that because I didn't, I didn't, I did not think that I would get rejected from seminary. So when I got my rejection letter, I was really confused. And I called the, the dean of admission. I said, hey, I just need clarity. And they said, oh, well, you're going to have to speak to the dean of admission. I knew the dean of admission. The dean of admission knew my father. Like, he knew who I was. And so I'm on the phone with him. And I won't say his name. But I said, hi, um, I'm a little confused about the rejection. And he said, yeah, well, you're, you're missing you're missing the preaching and expository classes that are offered in the pastoral classes. Those three classes are prerequisites to this program. I said, um, yeah, but those are only open for men. And he said, mm. well, then I guess this program isn't for you. And wow, I literally, I had experienced the, the ostracization, the marginalization, the insecurity that I felt the being dismissed because of, like me being overweight and dumb and brown or whatever that I felt as a child, Mm -hmm. it resurfaced with the vengeance as an adult. And I was so furious that I said, you know what? I'm, this isn't for me. Like this is, this is not for me. And, um, that when we talk about resilience, it's little things like that, where you can let that pull you off course and off track, or you could use that as fuel to say, I, I'm, I, I'm convinced. I am convicted. I'm compulsed to do what I believe that God's called me to do. And here I am. And you will attest as my friend and as a leader that I look up to, God's hand of faithfulness has been over my life. And it's not because of tenacity or will. It's because I honored the call that God had placed on my life. And that has, that, that was a game changer. I love that. We have a saying here in our staff culture, tell me how to get to yes. Like, don't tell me no. Tell me how to get to yes and let me determine <laughs> if I want to pay the price. Uh, and, uh, and I think you just live that. Like, you're like, tell me how to get to yes, and I'll decide if I'm willing to pay the price. Like, wow. you, you always find a way to yes if it's in your heart and you know it's what God's called you to do. And, you. and I love that uh, you're at 12 and you can't read and you're in your early 20s and you're finishing graduate school. Just <laughs> how amazing is that? Well, and that, that seminary should be really sad now they didn't take you. Um, you'd be a great alumni. Um, 
Hey, talk to me about this. In the in that around 23, all that is happening, and I don't know the answer to this, so it's not a leading question. Would you say prior to that, the drive you had was me-centric, and after that, it became other-centric? Or did you just get kind of a, a better realization or revelation of, I guess I am a leader. I guess people no. do follow me. No, 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 no. It, it's definitely, it's definitely the prior. So, um, when, when I realized the power of education, when I realized the power of a degree or the power of knowledge, um, mm-hmm. I had mentioned I became voracious. Well, I realized that power and it was completely me centric because then mm-hmm. I was like, I'm going to go to college. I get to reinvent myself. I have, I had tons of scholarship money. I traveled Europe. I lost a ton of weight. I, I mean, I'm talking about whether it was pills and drugs to lose the weight or like tons of exercise and working out, but it was just like, I got to reformat my entire world to be absolutely completely unabashedly about me. Hmm. 100% going to graduate school after graduate school. I wanted to get my PhD. I wanted to open up an art gallery in Los Angeles. I wanted to represent underrepresented artists. I wanted to be a contemporary art gallery. I had my whole life. I was going to marry a guy with one eye, one green, one blue eye, one green eye. And like, you know, live on large Like I had my whole <laughs> life. Right. Yeah. And then everything changed with my mom's cancer diagnosis. Hmm. Uh, the things that seemed very sparkly and very desirous no longer mattered anymore. And it was then that I began to just have my heart be opened and softened. I think because of the financial uh, financial stresses that I grew up in, I associated ministry with being poor and ministry mm. with ha- having pain. And so because I didn't want to live in either of those, broke and sad, I was like, I'm going to swing so far away from ministry. And it was during the time with my mom's brain cancer and finishing grad school that I went to... Uh, I like to say I was voluntold as in like you, you kind of think you're volunteering, but someone's really <laughs> yeah. telling you what to do. And, um, I was on summer break in grad school and I was in, I was, there was a great need, a huge gap. There was no female leaders for the summer camp in Lake Havasu here in California. It was 10 hours away from LA. And I, I did the Christian thing. I didn't mean it. I'm the, I'm the pastor's daughter at church. So I didn't mean this. I just said it to sound like a good Christian. I was like, well, if you need help, let me know. And the youth pastor's just like, mm-hmm. I need help. And then I was like, oh, I'm in grad school. I have no money. And he pulls out a checkbook. Like who carries checkbooks? <laughs> he pulls out a checkbook. He writes a check for $150 and said, you're going to camp. And it was the, it was at, it was right at the height of like surrendering mom's life into the hands of God. Mm. What am I doing with my life? going to this youth camp. And I, it was the first time that I'd ever taught the Bible. He was like, okay, we're gonna separate the guys from girls and you're going to teach the girls and I'm going to teach the guys. And there's, there's 150 kids at this camp. And so I had about 60, 70 girls. And I was just like, wait, do teach a Bible study. I don't know how to teach a Bible study. And he's like, oh, your dad's a pastor. You'll be fine. And I opened up the word of God and I taught out of Psalm 51. And I, there was something that clicked. Pastor Daniel, there was something that clicked in my heart that I was like, Amazing. I am fashioned to do this. I yeah. love making the Bible come alive. And pe- you could see transformation in the eyes of these inner city youth kids. And I'm like, there ain't no high like the most high. This is the best drug. And I <laughs> love serving. I love serving people. And um, yeah, so all that to say, that is when it, tr- it turned from like me, me, me to we, we, we. And wow. I think that there's certain leaders, uh, some people, 
I'm a writer by trade. And so when you think about writing, it's just like, are you writing as a coach? Are you write, writing as an expert? As you Are you writing as a guide? And I realized that my style of leadership is more like a guide. I'm still, I wouldn't mm. say that I'm like young. I'm not in my 20s anymore. But like, I, I don't think that like I'm coming in as the expert. I'm kind of like, hey guys, I've tried this. Let me tell you the little that I know. And let's figure this out together. That's my style of leadership. And it wasn't until... Um, who you need to get Pastor Craig Rochelle on this podcast because there is no other like leadership thinker like him. I think you guys would just be amazing together. But it was actually, again, and this has been a slow evolution. So I think for anyone out there that's kind of like, I still don't identify as a a leader or I'm still trying to figure Mm -hmm. out my leadership identity. I think a key point is sometimes hearing it from somebody else. So what my father did for me at a very young age, reminding me that I that I'm beautiful, that I'm smart, that God has a plan for my life. It took somebody else in my adult years to tell me, you are a leader, you're called, there's a purpose for your life. And he looked at me with almost a sense of indignation and anger. He was like, you are a leader. Because I had said, we were in an interview together on his leadership podcast, and I said, no, I'm not a leader. And he said, no, you are a leader. There was something about his intensity. There was something about the veracity of what he was saying that that seed landed in my heart. And I'm, I'm telling you the truth. His truth was a seed that germinated in my heart to now I can boldly say, I am a leader. I'm yeah. a different type of leader, but I am a leader. And now I'm like excited about people like you or even people like me who are trying to identify and help other leaders identify their leadership potential, mm-hmm. their leadership identity, and put resources and tools in their hands to, to win, to do this well. Yeah. That's so good. Say those things again. As a writer, which I, I think this doesn't just apply to writing, it applies no, to yeah. maybe who you're, where you are yeah. in your leadership journey and who you're leading. To me, I, I thought, man, those are like four different hats. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes so I fun. need to wear the expert hat. Sometimes totally. I need to wear the coat. So, so just say those again real quick for everyone. So it's um, expert, coach, mentor, guide. It's so good. That's usually where I land. I land in guide because it's almost like this exploration where you're not necessarily Mm. gonna tell people, hey, these are the five steps to get to X marks the spot on the treasure map. It's gonna be like, we're gonna figure this out together. Hey, I've gone this path before. Let me tell you what I've learned along the way. A mentor is gonna be someone that's that's literally gonna ask, um, it's more like the Socratic method of writing or communicating. So you're asking, so Matt is very like, I don't think he would, my husband, for those that don't know, Matt is more Socratic. So I, I think that he's asking probing questions. He's making mm-hmm. people think for themselves. I'm going to teach you how to fish so that you can make your own meal. Yeah. Um, and, and that takes a different, very, very different type of skill. And not everyone is called to lead very Socratically or to write or think or preach like a mentor. Um, and then I think expert uh, you, 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 you could desire to be an expert, right? Like an expert and teach like an expert, but you actually have to have education or a lot of life experience. Yeah. And then, um, uh, Oh, coach. So coaches, they're the ones that are laying out the game plan. They've gone before they're now in a different season and they're laying it out for you. So I would mm-hmm. say like coach writing or, um, coach preaching is definitely Craig Rochelle. I mean, the man is so didactic. He lays it all out. Um, Somebody like um, an expert is going to be somebody like a John Ortberg, for those that are familiar with preaching. Um, Mm -hmm. I would say even like a T.D. Jakes, very different in his expertise. Um, He's more narrative as an expert. Um, Or even somebody like, uh, actually, here's a great expert, Tim Keller. Tim Keller is a phenomenal expert. So he's taking 
deep, deep theological truths. And he's teaching us in a way, and he's bringing in so many additional resources and information. And then somebody like a guide is like a Lisa Turkhurst. I think Lisa Turkhurst is a great guide mm. where she's, she's taking great. you through her personal life experience and then she's making it very practical and said, Hey, let's do this together. Yeah. That's so good. I love that. So you mentioned, uh, you got rejected from a seminary because yeah. you couldn't meet the prerequisites that were only for guys. Now you're pastoring a church. So, <laughs> Tell me that talk, God does not have a funny sense of humor. <laughs> talk to us a little bit, because I think some of the resiliency that we have to build is breaking past our own constructs. Yeah. Obviously, in, in, in faith, we have to go, all right, is what I've always heard what I really believe and mm-hmm. my understanding of being faithful to the scripture. I think for somebody else, they may have to break through, oh, I don't see myself in that way. What were some of the barriers, maybe two or three barriers you had to break through to now your pastor, leader, author, speaker, Bianca so, Juarez, Altoff? <laughs> Look at you. Look at you saying it so hey. perfectly, too. I'm so proud of you. Um, you. Okay, so I, I do want to... Uh, you had said something about like, you will never be it unless you can envision it. And I want someone to hear that because that's gold. I wish I had. I think Mm. that even, even now in the most recent, like three year span of church planning alongside Matt is I would say that I was obedient, but I didn't feel like I was the one. I didn't feel like I could. Now I'm realizing the power of our, uh, of our mindset that we need, um, to, to step into that. So I'm actually going to steal that one as my number one, because I wish I would have learned that earlier to start envisioning yourself as a leader, to start actually building out an archetype. Again, I I'm a writer by trade, so I have to write everything out. And in the same way that I would build a marketing plan for who I want to target, I actually want to put a plan together for the leader that I want to be. So one of the hurdles that I would have to overcome is I want to if I could engineer a leader, I'm looking at my whiteboard right now. And if I could engineer a leader, um, what are the aspects or the attributes of that leader that I would want to inherit or emulate? So I think that that was like key. And that's not even from Bianca. That is from Daniel. Um, I would say that the second one is theological. And that one's tough because um, I, I have explored scripture and no matter how much we can go back and forth, there's just always going to be people on both sides of mm-hmm. The, the, the fence, both sides of the aisle that are arguing and advocating for both. And so where I stand is I honor and I understand people's beautiful exposition of scripture and why they think that the way that they think. But this is what I will say. And this is the hurdle that I had to come over. I, I could not read another theologian. I could not exegete another passage. I had to come to a realization that one day I'm going to, okay, I'm going to try not to get emotional because we're talking about leadership. Okay. One day. I'm going to have to come face to face with my maker and be asked what I did with his son. And I want to say, I boldly proclaim the name of Jesus on platforms behind pulpits, on street corners, on fields in Africa to corners in Mexico, because I believe in the God who is and his son, Jesus. And I want the world to be free. Otherwise, the only other relegation is I said nothing because I'm a female 
and I was afraid of getting it wrong. If I'm gonna get something wrong, I'm gonna err on the side of telling people about Jesus. And if I get to heaven and I'm wrong, I'll be like, my bad, but look at all these people who met you, Jesus, (laughs) you know? (laughs) So that was a huge, huge hurdle. And this is the last hurdle that I think, um, I'm still, uh, it's a hurdle that somehow resurrects itself repeatedly in my life, is the hurdle of, Tension and pain and resistance feeling like reasons why I should stop. Hmm. And so this hurdle is, is one that like, as an Enneagram seven, the last thing I want is conflict. The last thing I want is pain. And the last thing I want is emotions, right? Like, like I don't, I don't want to be sad. I don't want this to be hard. And, um, so when something is hard, when something does feel painful, when conflict does arise, it feels like, well, clearly I'm not hearing from God. Like if this is God, it's going to be easy. But resilience is saying, I'm going to constantly seek the Lord. If the Lord is still saying yes, or still saying that I'm supposed to move forward, then I have to, I have to hear, adhere to that. I have to say, this is what I'm called to do no matter what. And that I would say, I wish the other two hurdles I've, 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 I've scaled those this one is the one that will resurrect itself quite often mm. in this season of my life. So I'm constantly saying, okay, it's going to be hard. It's going to be tough. I'm going to feel like I want to quit. But if the Lord has called me to it, then mm-hmm. I'm going to honor the call that I made as a 11-year-old in the backyard eating cheese saying, if you give me words, I'll give you my voice. This is so good. I want people to hear this is all throughout our conversation today, if, if I were to um, do like my own diagnosis, I would say what gives you resiliency at the end of the day, all these other things being true, is there's a clear calling. You, you sense that your life is on the planet for a reason. And so hard times, pain, mm-hmm. rejection, loneliness, whatever the world can throw, and it can even make you go, Maybe I'll find something else to do. I, I don't know many leaders that, especially during 2020, 2021, I know I looked at Tammy and was like, you think there's anything else I can do with my life? <laughs> that, like, you know, like, I think we've all, if we're all honest, we've all been there, yeah. but it came back to God called me. Like, I know, I, I know there's something on my life and I'm supposed to use my life in that way. And I think that's so strong. And I think it's so important. Uh, there was an article written by uh, the vice president of culture for Southwest Airlines. That's, that alone should, like, we should think <laughs> about that. They have a vice president role to create culture. I love, love that. Which is powerful. In a, um, I think I'm getting this number right. In an employee survey, over 80% of the people were there because they felt called. So I don't think calling is just a Christian thing. Wow. I think everyone wants to know. It was Mark Twain that said the two most important days are the day you're born, the day you figure out why. And I think that's so critical. I interviewed eight leaders who were leading large organizations, tens of millions of dollars in revenue. And at the end of all those interviews done separately, the conclusions were, um, what, what was it about their leadership? And it was this, they all had a clear calling and that calling is what allowed them to persevere in difficult times, um, because if you lead, you're gonna have, if you build anything great, you're gonna have difficult times, and it was all of them. They came back to I got this thing, this calling. I can't, yeah. I can't get away from. All right, a couple that. more thoughts uh, before we wrap up. You're a content master. 
a phenomenal <laughs> communicator. So Your podcast is super successful. Hello, 1 million downloads. Just want to give a shout out on that. <laughs> Thank uh, you. You're an author, written several books. Talk to us a little bit about just personal disciplines. Um, I think just let's get real practical for the last few minutes. Personal disciplines that allow you to do all that. I mean, mm. you, you're a pastor, leader, communicator, stepmom. You are a seven. You're a party waiting to happen. <laughs> you are an amazing host. Uh, you just all these things. I, I, I get tired sometimes. I'm just watch your Instagram. I'm like, wow, I need a nap. I need, I need a nap watching everything Bianca's doing. <laughs> what are some um, yeah. personal disciplines that so, all of us could use? So I'm going to, I'm going to give my methodology and my schedule and I'm not advocating and saying, this is the way I'm just saying it's my way. Um, but I think that the principles that we can pull from it is just very structured. And so, um, God has a funny sense of humor because I'm Mexican and I love being late and throwing parties. And I just have to, when the spirit moves me, then I'll go. <laughs> and I married a man of German descent and the Germans are organized and strategic and always on the time and the budget. And, and so like, I think that we've had many uh, conversations where Matt would say structure, structure isn't your enemy, Bianca. Structure for creative feels like it's hampering you, but structure and organization is going to make you fly. And when, so we started walking through like the disciplines of like looking strategically at my calendar. And so, um, I just signed my next contract for my next book. And the first thing, Congratulations. Did, thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm, I'm not even celebrating yet. I'm not celebrating yet because the first thing that we did was we looked at the next eight months and we went through religiously and looked at all the weeks that I'm preaching at church, all the weeks that I'm going to be writing, all the weeks that I have activities. And like, I literally blocked out days to specifically write. And I reached out to my team and my staff and my family. And I said, anything that we want to do before June 1st, amazing. Anything after that, I'm going to be under a rock. You will not mm. see me for four to five months. And it's the power of no. It's living by Google calendars. It is, um, I, I hate saying this, but it's maximizing your full day. Everyone has 24 hours in the day. And um, it sometimes will drive me crazy that people are going to sleep 12 hours of it. It's like sleep when you die, kid. You know, like, come on. Like, yeah, of course we got to be healthy and expect rhythms. But I think um, um, I'm going to reference Pastor Craig Rochelle again, is that it's not that we're tired, is that we're not investing in the things that fill us back up. So hmm. it's, it's, I, yes, I do pour out a lot. I'm a podcaster. I'm a writer. I'm a stepmom. I'm a pastor. I'm a communicator. I also travel and speak. I'll be at, I'll be at your church, yes, in August, come on. you know? And so like the, so those are all pour outs. I need to be very litigious. I work out every day. Cause that's a pour in once a month. I go to a spa and I get a decadent massage and I do not care because that is important. There are some days where I'll, I literally will have to tell Matt, I'm just going to stay in my bedroom and stay in my bed until 10 and read a novel because I need to pour in. Mm. So I would say those three things have been, um, getting super organized, living by my calendar and making sure that I'm filling up are the things that are really, really helpful for any creative or leader that wants to be high functioning and high capacity. And then I mean, if, if you have resources and wherewithal, um, a, a business coach or an organizational coach is always helpful. I don't have one yet. Uh, one day I will have the finances and resources, but I'm, I'm wildly fascinated with meeting with like an efficiency coach to see yeah. where are gaps and holes. One of the activities that I did, again, as a maximizer, one of the activities that I did is I did seven days of 
documenting every single minute of my day. I'm talking about like mm-hmm. literally 30 sec, 30 minute in- increments and then seeing where was I wasting time and where was I most efficient. And then, um, Carrie Newhoff has this book called at your best and such a good book. It's such a great book, such a great book. And I took his method of color coding my Google calendar for my, the, the red is when do not talk to me. I'm writing. I have no meetings. This is when I'm like, creating. And then I have yellow is for my meetings and green is open for fun or family or fill in my cup. So those things That's are so definitely game changers. I'm so glad you said that the power of no, uh, cause I think some people can think, Oh, I'm a seven. I like, I gotta have fun. FOMO is real, <laughs> but it's, it's the discipline. Like it, it is. It's not, and it's, it's so the, sad. It makes me discipline. sad. <laughs> People have to know. Sevens need to know. You will be sad about this, but you say no now for your better yes later. And people think like, okay, I can say no to visiting with my in-laws, but let's say that I just got an invite. I mean, I want to say, I wanted to say yes so bad. First of all, I love Texas. I feel like my soul was born in Texas. It was an invite to Texas. It's 20,000 youth, next gen college students. I mean, it's, it sounds epically fun. And I had to say no, because I'm writing a book and I had to say no because I was preaching that weekend. So you're going to say no and it's going to hurt, but the no is for the better yes later on. Yeah, it's so great. I, I love the, I don't know if you've read Stephen Pressfield's book, uh, The War of the Art. The War of Art, yes. And yes. I feel like it's, this is in that same vein. It's like, yeah. oh, I'm going to, I'm going to fight the resistance <laughs> and everything in me wants to go. I can fit it all. I can make it all happen. I'm, I'm so guilty of this. Come here, do this, do that. Yeah, let's do it all. And I've got four <laughs> children and I've got a church. And and it's like, no, but if I'll fight the resistance that yeah. is wanting to, uh, there's so much, there's such a better yes on the other side. All right, one Absolutely. last question. Yes. Um, I love this question and uh, I want to end with this. Um, give us a little advice. Number one, what do you think the greatest threat to leaders are today? I would say especially speak to young leaders. And then what do you think the greatest opportunity is today? The greatest threat, I'm going to speak to my generation, the greatest threat right now is is giving up at building a dream other than yours. Hmm. We are seeing people drop out of organizations and churches left and right to... Um, and they're fully funding the gig economy and this is, this is great. And they're, you know, trying to build their empires. But one of the greatest learning lessons that I received working for Christine Kane is there is power in building something bigger than your own name. That's great. And, um, uh, my pastor, pastor Dave Patterson said <laughs> that you build someone else's dream until the Lord releases you to build yours. And I think like, that's just, it's lost on this generation and it's painful and it's hard and we just want to quit. We want to give up. But I think like some of the greatest learning about our own leadership is watching the leadership of a generation before Mm us. And the greatest opportunity for leadership is I'm going to, this is where all of my Holy Spirit fruit loopness is going to come out. I believe that this is the greatest opportunity for revival that world history has yet to see. We have yeah. more access to access. We have more access to global technological advances as well as global communication. You uh, Globalization has made Justin 
Bieber, a, an American Canadian name, go into Bieber fever from Japan. We're talking mm-hmm. about music that's crossing over from Parisian rap to Compton hip hop. I mean, right now the globe is ripe. What the Romans Road did for the spread of the gospel, technology and social media can do for our day to day. And so my greatest hope is that the church will see its best days, its greatest days, the days ripe for revival for God's kingdom to take place. Like, I think people talk about, oh, the Jesus movement, the Jesus days. My parents talk about the Jesus movement Mm -hmm. from like 60s and 70s. And I'm just like, my generation needs to see that. And my generation is ripe to have something go huge. And that's what makes me most, most excited in this next season. Somebody say amen right there. Well, thank you, Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) Bianca, it's been a treat having you on the podcast today. Thank you so much. Have so much respect for you. You I love you and Tammy and the kids and the church and this podcast. I'm so grateful for you. So thank you for letting me be on the show. Absolutely. Absolutely.